0: So I invite you to turn with me, if you have a Bible, and I encourage you always to have a Bible in front of you, Uh, Genesis chapter 20, Genesis chapter 20, Um. and we're reading the story of Abraham and Abimelech. So let's read from verse 1. We'll read the whole chapter down to the end. So remember that uh, Abraham has been overlooking uh, the site of Sodom and Gomorrah being destroyed in the previous chapter. And so verse 1 says, From there, Abraham journeyed towards the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and innocence of my hands, I have have done this. And then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What you, did, what you what did you see that you did this thing? And Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me, do me Uh, at every place to which we come, save me, he is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah his wife to him. And Abimelech said, behold, my land is before you, dwell where it pleases you. So to Sarah he said, behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver Now, this is an interesting passage because uh, it may, you may, and you may recognise this. It seems very similar to uh, a previous incident back in chapter twelve, and that happened about twenty-five years earlier. Uh, where, and in that case, Abraham and Sarah went down to Egypt because of a famine. In this case, and Abraham, in fear of his life, uh, gets his wife to say that. Uh, he is her brother, and she is his sister. And he hopes that that will protect him uh, from any danger from uh, neighboring, the neighboring kings, from Pharaoh. Now this story seems to be similar, uh, although there are plenty of differences, which we'll note in a minute. Uh, but the thing that seems to be similar in this different setting is the subterfuge that Abraham indulges in. In calling Sarah his sister. Uh, when he comes into contact with powerful kings. And if you look at verse 13. Uh, you'll see Abraham give, says this. That uh, when God caused me to wander from my father's house. I said to her. This is the kindness you must do to me. At every place we come. Save me. He is my brother. In other words, right at the beginning of Abraham following the call of God. He has this strategy for visiting strange places. Where he gets Sarah to say of him that he is her her brother. So this is a habit that he has had for decades now. And he gets Sarah to collude in this story, the subterfuge, now when we looked at the similar story back in chapter 12, um, I came to the conclusion fairly quickly that Abraham was sinning in doing this, um, that he was driven by a fear of losing his own life, and so he was willing to risk his wife 's honor. You remember the story that uh, it seems that Pharaoh actually took her uh, Sarah into his family, into his harem and may well have tried to sleep with her. But here's Abraham, he's willing to risk that for the sake of his life and here he seems to be doing it again. I should say, uh, not everybody agrees with that view. Um, uh, Some commentators and writers on this Passage, these passages have suggested that Abraham all the time was acting in faith. Uh, that he knew the promise of God and so his, his faith was uh, being carried out by acting to protect the future fulfillment of the promise of a son that's going to come and, and to bless the nations and so on. And so Abraham's kind of acting in faith. Uh, and his, his thinking there is, well my actions will keep me alive so that Promises of God can be fulfilled. And so some commentators think of this simply as a trial of faith. Through this, uh, I have to say, I just don't agree with that, I'm afraid. Um, I think there's an almost willful blindness to the sins and the complexities of the sins of the human heart. Even in the hearts of God's people. That even in the best of saints, there can be sins. In fact, there can be long running, repeating, besetting sins in the lives of God's people. And they keep coming back. In similar circumstances, the same tendencies emerge and we continue to sin. Habits that have become so ingrained. To which people become blind. You can't, sometimes you can't even see that you're doing it. And these kinds of sins take a long time to, to be purged out of our lives by the grace of God. I think that's what we're seeing here. Even in, the, in those of the strongest faith, they are prone to weakness. And may have besetting sins to which they are blind. I wonder how many sins you have to which you are blind that you have never identified. And I have. But in the end, Abraham's survival and his keeping the faith in the fulfillment of the promises of redemption come down to the continuing irresistible grace of God. It doesn't really depend on him. It depends on the grace of God and him continuing to fulfill all his promises in spite of all the sins that emerge from even Abraham's heart. So I think this passage comes as a warning to us, but it also comes to us as a great encouragement. You and I were great sinners today. And yet God still works in the midst of a people of great sins. And we can be encouraged. What a great God we have. So let's t- think first of all about this. As we think about this story, let's think first of all about the deception that Abraham is indulging. The, first, this, the chapter begins this way. From, from there, Abraham journeyed towards the territory of the Negev and lived and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said to his wife, she's my sister. Uh, just some background information to this. Um, so Abimelech is a, a local king, a king of a city. Um, it's, it's probably not a name uh, so much as a, an honorific title. Uh, rather like Pharaoh is not a name, but it's a, it's a name of a king. And uh, Abimelech means basically my father is king. The king is my father. Melech means king. Have ever seen Melech? Um, you know, it's king. And Ab means father, and Abi means my father. And so, the king is a, a picture of a father to the people. <laughs> so, Abimelech is a father to his city, if you like. The father of the city. And there is a suggestion in some commentators that uh, such local kings assumed that they had rights to the unmarried traveling women. And they could pick and choose who they brought into their household. And so they'd take a woman, If if, if he took a fancy to her, he could take a woman that's unmarried and take her into his household. And Abraham's Aware of this kind of pattern of behavior amongst kings. And so he has, this is why he is calling Sarah his sister. This is the reason he gives at least. He says in verse 11, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God in this place and they will kill me because of my wife. They will kill me because of my wife. And his claim that she is his sister is is kind of half true actually. Because it turns out in verse twelve, you know she is actually a half sister um, read verse twelve she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, same father, though not the daughter of my mother she and she became my wife now that taking of half sisters as a as a wife was still a, a, a common practice uh, in the place where Abraham came from in Haran uh, to the east uh, and there wasn 't the law of God yet to say. Uh, you can't marry people that are too closely related to you yet, and so these habits kind of developed. And so they're married, half sister and half brother, and they're married. Now, so that's the that's the background, uh, some background to this. Um, I've mentioned before that there. I mentioned before that there are some similarities with chapter twelve. Um, but there are important differences, so let me just run through a few of the differences that are important here. Uh, first of all, uh, Abraham has gone to Gerar, uh, uh, which is just slightly to the south of, uh, southwest of the Sea of uh, the Dead Sea, um, at the southern end of uh, modern-day Israel. Um, So he's not going to Egypt this time. Uh, He's not gone because there's a famine. He's just traveling. He's sojourning. So there's no necessity for him necessarily to go there, uh, go to Gerar. Uh, Another difference is that Pharaoh, remember, was moved to investigate what was going on because suddenly he found himself in the midst of affliction. There were all kinds of things going wrong uh, in his household and in the surrounding people. There was suffering going on. And he thought, how have I sinned? How have I wronged the gods or whatever? And he discovers that he's taken this wife, uh, this, taken Sarah, who's married already. Whereas Abimelech is moved to do something about Sarah because of a revelation of God. Quite profoundly different. You remember that Pharaoh expelled Abraham. Pharaoh had had enough of Abraham and said, you better go. And he sent a, an, almost a, an army, a contingent with him to make sure he left the country. Whereas Abimelech offers Abraham the chance to stay and take the pick of the land. Stay where you like. Enjoy it. We can't be sure whether or not Sarah was violated by Pharaoh, but we're explicitly told that here, in Gerar, the Lord protected Sarah from Abimelech, in verse 6. So there's just a few of the differences. Um, and it's quite a different story when you look at the detail. Although the sin seems to be the same. They both come with the same besetting sin. And it's clear from verse 13 that it's a pattern of behavior that Abraham has been indulging in for a number of years. Now, it's interesting how closely, at this point, Abraham and Sarah are to the fulfilment of the promise of a son in the next chapter. Isaac is going to be born. They've been waiting for years, even decades, and even in just at the coming up to the critical moment where Isaac is about to be born, and you get this kind of crisis in the life of Abraham. And suddenly there's a risk. And it seems that the promise of God is is being put into jeopardy by by Abraham who's being a bit stupid. Couldn't he just have avoided going to Gerar at all? There's a weakness in Abraham. A weakness that causes him to fail to trust God when faced with particularly awkward or tempting moments however what a great thing it is to have a God who in spite of our sin remains faithful to us this passage I think serves to remind us that though Abraham was a man of faith it was not his faith that carried favour with God and therefore God blessed him it's not faith that expunges sin Before a holy God. Abraham does not get God's favor because he earned it through his works or through the strength of his faith. Abraham gets God's favor because Abraham chose to favor him. He chose to set his love upon Abraham. Even though he was a sinner. a great truth today, isn't it? God loves you if you're a Christian today. God loves you, not because you're a great person. You may well be. I may think so. (laughs) But God doesn't love you because of that. He loves you because he loves you. He chooses to love you. He sees all your sins and all your failure and all your weakness and all the hidden things you cannot see. He sees all of it, every single last uh, mucky bit of it. But he loves you. How he loves you. And he continues to work for his glory and for your good. That you may be blessed forever. This is a great truth. Every new Christian, you see, every, everybody who becomes a Christian. That's the great revelation that they see. And suddenly the God who is distant and far away and sometimes all you could see is judgments. And you say, where is God and all this? And he's useless and all the rest of it. And suddenly you see it. By grace you see how loving he is and he sent his son to die for you. The great demonstration of his love on the cross. And the new Christian sees it. Oh, how can I turn away from this God? I must go to him. And so people come to Christ. and get saved. Or every old Christian, a few of us are old Christians today. We see afresh the sheer love and grace and faithfulness of God. In spite of all the many sins that seem to uncover themselves through our lives. We all see we're sinners and it seems to get, we seem to get worse, don't we? If we're walking with God, we seem to become see more sins, more sins. And yet the more we see our sins, the more we see the glory of God and the grace of God and the goodness of God. And we say, I'm safe in his hands. Because he's he's my faithful God. And he has loved me. He continues to love me. He will never not love me. His love never diminishes. He can't love you more and he will never love you less. What a great God and Savior we have. This is what we're seeing here in Genesis chapter 20. Well, secondly, there is revelation in verses 3 to 7. And God intervenes in revelation. Not directly into Abraham's life. Interesting, isn't it? But into Abimelech's life. The pagan. The unbeliever. The man who presides over a city in whom Abraham believes there is no fear of God. God comes to Abimelech. Sometimes we find it hard to believe that God can work in the life of an unbeliever. That God could work in somebody who has decidedly opposed the God of heaven. But a person's opposition to God is no opposition to God, really. God intervenes here. There it is. Here it is in scripture. God does it. He comes into the life of an unbeliever. And there's this discussion that goes on in a dream. And God comes and and threatens Abimelech with death. For having committed a great sin. The sin of taking another man's wife, and it's a great sin not just for God's chosen people, but for all people, because that's how God has created mankind. You go back to Genesis chapter one, Genesis two. God has made man and woman to be one flesh, to be together. What God is, what is this we say in marriages, what God has joined together, let no man put asunder. Well, because we believe that God cares about marriage. And it's a great sin to break up a marriage. Now, Abimelech protests his innocence in the matter in verses 4 and 5. He uses the words uh, innocence, uh, integrity. I've been innocent in this. I've acted in integrity. And of course, he's he's not referring to his life perfect, his life in all its generality. As though he's innocent all the time and he's perfect all the time. Uh, no, he's referring to this particular matter. I've acted in innocence. He has not approached her. And that's a kind of another Hebraic euphemism for uh, having sexual relations with her. I've not approached her. But Abimelech doesn't get away that easily. The Lord replies, it was I who kept you from sinning against me. In other words, in that particular matter of sleeping with her, he has been prevented from sinning. But he is still a dead man as far as God is concerned because of the intentions of his heart and his negligence in not doing due diligence to check whether she's married or not. Just a couple of notes in passing. First of all, all sin is against God. All sin is against God. Even if it's perpetrated against another human being, it's always sin against God first and foremost. Every sin. Every single sin. For the simple reason that people are made in the image of God. Um, I wonder if you knew this, but uh, in in the the United Kingdom, it's it's a crime... To deface a coin of the realm, you know, take a pair of pliers to coin, or to chop up a, and burn a, a note, it's actually a crime. Why? At least in the old days, it had the face of the queen on it, or the king. And to deface a coin of the realm was to dishonor the king or the queen. So it was a crime. It's treasonous. If that was true then, how much more now with the image of God in you and me? When we sin against each other, it is a crime against God. A sin against God. Because you deface the image in the other person. Oh, friends. How we need to take our sin seriously. Second thing about this is, the sins God sees are not simply the actions that we carry out, but He sees deep into the motives and attitudes of the heart. It's not enough to live a neat and tidy life without any obvious wrongdoing. You see, God sees underneath all of that, He sees the sea of raging passions that are within. He sees all our desires. He sees all our intentions. Even if it never comes to fruition in actions. Here's the amazing thing. God intervenes in the life of Abimelech to prevent an open and public sin. And the great truth here is God is continually active in restraining sin. He holds back sin. He holds back evil. According to his wise governing of the universe. So we can't always discern why certain things happen and some things don't. But what this teaches us, is God sends his restraining hand on sins. And he does it because he is faithful to his promises. So all his promises that we've been following from Genesis 3.15 where the seed was going to come, working all the way through Noah and coming to to Abraham and uh, you'll have a great nation. A seed will come. All of those promises are working towards God fulfilling everything he intends. And everything he does is geared towards that great end. The exaltation of his son Jesus Christ and the gathering of his people in him, under him. So that in the end we glory in the risen, ascended, reigning Lord Jesus Christ forever. Everything working towards that end. All things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Everything works for good. And part of that is restraining sin, holding it back. God continues to do that today. The seed that was promised in Genesis 3.15 eventually comes. Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And he executes the office of king. So we have a, in our catechism, we have a question it says, how does Christ execute the office of king? Verse number 26, question 26. Christ executes the office of king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. That's a summary of what the Bible teaches about the kingly reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. That he is able to restrain sin. And this is what's happening here in Gerar with Abimelech, king of a place wherein there is no fear of God, where the mother of the promised son to Abraham is protected from harm from this man. And this is such an encouragement to us that we sin, we fail, we're full of selfish concerns, but God's purposes will not be thwarted. He will carry out what He desires. He will act in the most amazing ways. And in spite of us and in spite of our enemies, he will do all that is planned. And he will bring it all to fruition for his glory and for our good. Here's the third thing. Two more. Here's the third. Confrontation. These will be quicker. Confrontation, verses 8 to 13. Abimelech goes and confronts Abraham after this revelation. About what he's done. And he fires a, a barrage of questions. You see that there in verse 9? Uh, verse he says, uh, what have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought in me and my kingdom a great sin? And then he makes a statement. And then in verse 10 he says, what did you see that you did this thing? He said, bang, bang, bang. Uh, question, question, question. And it's through this questioning that Abraham is confronted with his own sin. And it's interesting, it's always interesting, it takes a non-believer, a pagan unbeliever uh, to, to do this. And it, it kind of just highlights the shame of sin, the depravity of our own hearts, that even non-believers can be shocked by the, be- the behavior to our eyes of the best of God's people. Shocking, isn't it? And then when Abraham gets round to answering Abimelech's questions, uh, look at the way that he answers Abimelech. You, you can see the evasion and, di- and difficulties he's having. So look at verse 11. Uh, let, me, let me read it. I keep losing my place here. Verse 11. I did it because I thought there is no fear of God in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. that's a plausible response Uh, kind of like Sodom there may have been no fear in Gerar and maybe they would have killed him but actually he doesn't know that for a fact does he and as so often before God is is absent in his thinking from his thinking and there's no trust in God in this moment he rationalizes his way out of it and then there's verse 12 there's further rationalization of a bad decision verse 12 Uh, she is indeed my sister the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And it's all true. <laughs> I guess it's true. It, it, it's not saying anything not true at that point. But you know how you have these... You know, when you make a bad decision, when I make a bad decision, you begin to put an argument together to justify that decision. And it, That argument serves to try and make your decision look reasonable. Make your wrongdoing look reasonable. And so in one sense, Abraham's comment here is, is faultless. Who can doubt what Abraham is saying? But what he's doing is he is using the truth to hide a sinful heart. That he lived in fear. And it's not the whole truth. It's only half-truth. She is his half-sister and he's his wife. That's what happens when you rationalize sin. You create plausible reasons and you cast truth in a particular way so that others can be deflected from what's really going on in the heart. And then verse 13, finally. um, He says this. God... Caused me, when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said, this is the kindness you must do to me at every place to which we come. Save me, he is my brother. Uh, God caused me to wander from my father's house. What's Abraham doing there? He's kind of shifting blame. God caused all this. God did it. But these are not the words of a man who is expressing a mighty sense of call from God, which indeed he had. These are the complaining thoughts of somebody who's got himself into trouble. God caused me to wander. It doesn't sound very exciting, does it? <laughs> it's not untrue, but it hardly conveys that sense of divine destiny. That he has. So he's kind of saying it's God's fault. And he's not, he's not just limiting it, God's fault to this little visit to Since he's, he's talking about since he left his father's house. It was decades ago. Since I left my father's house, God caused me to wander. My whole life has been God's fault. What a strange thing to say. a great temptation isn't it to shift the blame of how your life is working out onto someone or something else or even onto God this this temptation it goes right back to the garden of Eden and that first sin when Adam is found out and he's eaten of the fruit that he was told not to eat what's his first response this woman that you gave me God gave me the fruit to eat he blames his wife. Blames someone else. Blame shifting. I wonder if that's ever happened to you. It's certainly happened to me. I know it many times. You've been finding out about something and in your shame you try and shift the blame onto someone else so that you can look better and someone else can look worse. Or you speak in half truths or twist the arguments in your favor. It's so easy. And here it is in the Bible, in the, life, in the life of someone who is called the friend of God. Isn't that shocking? The friend of God. But nonetheless, in the midst of all of this, there is remarkable grace. God is not a God who, once he has chosen, one, chosen someone and has set his love on someone, will simply allow sin to persist in someone's life. And he will, in due time, bring it out into the open. And sometimes in surprising ways. But all to good purpose. That the sin might be exposed. And that our secret love for it might be killed and destroyed. So it's an act of grace that we're seeing here. Working out in events. God is exposing sin for the good of Abraham. Well finally, and just very briefly. We see intercession uh, in verses 14 to 18. Um, It's clear that Abimelech uh, wants to get rid of the appearance of guilt through offering gifts, and uh, he offers Abraham many gifts. But the remarkable thing is what Abraham does and what God does in answer to what Abraham does. Because Abraham, who's here described as a prophet, it's the first time it's ever the word prophet is, uh, ever appears in the Old, in the Old Testament. But Abram is def- described as a prophet. Somebody who speaks for God. Who speaks as a mouthpiece of God. And this prophet prays for Abimelech and his household. And what becomes clear right at the end in verse 18 is that the Lord had closed the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abram's wife, uh, In other words, no children could be conceived. And it probably means that this whole episode has taken place over a number of months. Um, And it's taken a number of months to work out. But Abraham becomes the intercessor, the prayer, the, the one who prays for the unbeliever here. And I guess Abraham has repented of his sin. Psalm 66 verse 18 tells us that if we cherish sin in our hearts, God does not listen. It doesn't diminish his love one bit, but he he does not listen to those who cherish sin in their heart. Um, So we conclude that Abraham must have repented of sin. And God does hear that prayer and opens the womb of these women. See, what we're seeing here is God at the work at work in what you might call the muck of life, muck of our lives. And we we live in muck (laughs) of our sin. But God is continually at work, and he shows the most amazing grace and kindness. And the reason he does it all, and he gives a, a kind of... A reason on the way to the greater reason here. He says, because of Sarah, Abram's wife. Uh, because of Sarah, who's going to bear the child who's the next stage in the plan of redemption? I do it because of Sarah. I do it because of my plans. I, God does it because I have these purposes. I'm going to work these things out. And God keeps his promise. You see, from Sarah is going to come a seed, Isaac. Isaac. He's going to produce another seed, Jacob, and so on. It goes down until the day when the seed comes. A son of Mary and Joseph. Descended from David, descended from Abraham. The seed who would come, who would be the savior, we all need. God, you see, keeps his promises. And he does whatever he needs to see his promises fulfilled. For his own glory. And for the good of his people. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your amazing grace in the midst of the muck of life. We bring our lives to you with all all our sin and failure. But we thank you for the goodness that you've shown to us. That you love us because you love us. Not because we're good. And even if we were good, you wouldn't love us because of that. You love us because you love us. And we thank you. We pray that you'd help us to be honest with you with our sins and to believe that you're doing great things amongst us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.